As we turn to God's word, we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we have come to the end of this letter, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. This is 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3, and as we come to this text, I want to ask you this question. What if I were to predict the second coming of Christ was imminent within the next week? Uh, besides some of you uh, thinking that Pastor Will has lost a part of his mind, uh, I, I would hope there would be others who would remind me that such a prediction would be quite contrary to much of what we have learned through First and Second Thessalonians thus far. But if you were to suspend your knowledge of what Paul has already said and you considered that question, what would you do if you knew Jesus was returning uh, later this week or in the next month? Would you go to work tomorrow? Would you begin calling people? Would you make changes uh, in your life? Would you spend that time in prayer and meditation uh, on the Lord? What would you do? Well, we know throughout the New Testament, among other New Testament authors, the Apostle Paul writes in places suggesting that the return of the Lord is imminent. It seems that in places in the New Testament, it's written in that way to create a kind of vigilance among the people of God, vigilant in the living out of their faith prepared for his coming. But here in Thessalonians, while Paul has stressed very much the coming of Christ, his return again, in light of that, his message, his message this morning is, in light of the second coming of Christ, now get to work. Yes, the Lord is coming, but you need to focus on your work. You need to focus on your calling, the calling God has on your life. So let's see how that unfolds here in 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning at verse 6, through to the end. Paul writes this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In, in hearing this text, it's worth noting that Paul has mentioned the second coming of Christ in every single chapter through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians up to this point. Uh, just by way of noting the references 
in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13. Then he begins to expand on the teaching of the second coming in chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, and chapter 5, 1 through 11. And he begins to provide more detail and description about uh, what and how that return will unfold. In the second Thessalonians, three chapters long in, first cha- in the first chapter, verses 5 through 10, and in chapter 2, 1 through 12. For various reasons, we have seen Paul is speaking about the second coming of Christ. Uh, for various reasons, uh, some of the believers had lost loved ones, and they were wondering, is there hope beyond the grave for those loved ones of ours who have uh, died in the Lord? And Paul speaks about the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. There were false teachers as well, uh, uh, suggesting that, that the return of the Lord was already at hand. And Paul uh, corrects the thinking for them regarding his, the second coming of Christ. It's in every single chapter, with the exception of one, this chapter, the last chapter. And in some ways, it's a bit surprising, we could say almost anticlimactic. Wouldn't you want the last words that you're leaving to these believers to be about the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ? The end of suffering and persecution and affliction that these believers had endured. But it's almost as if Paul is saying through these letters, yes, the coming of Christ is a reality. There is hope and a bright future ahead. But for now, continue working out your faith. Continue laboring in the work that God has given to you. Continue serving the kingdom. Continue working at your vocation. Working as a husband. Working as a wife. Continue working as a parent. At the heart of this passage is a significant issue. Some suggest even a crisis that was happening in Thessalonica among these believers. And it's centered on this issue of work, labor, vocation in the Christian life. And I think it's captured well in the 11th verse, where Paul says, We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And while Paul focuses in on those who are idle, a word that is referring to someone who is unruly, their life is out of order, They're neglecting a work ethic that reflects godliness. Yet what Paul's words do is point us back to God's original design in creation for our lives. Because Paul's not just expressing concern about laziness among some people. It's a concern about how the Christian life and the Christian church should reflect the rhythm that God has set forth in this his world. The pattern for life that God has prescribed for a full life, for a flourishing life, for peace, for shalom. And that pattern includes work. That pattern includes labor. Now this may or may not be a surprise to you, but work and labor are not the result of sin. And you might be thinking, yeah, but pastor, you haven't been to my workplace, okay? It's tough. It's a mess. Perhaps an even greater surprise is that work is going to be a part of life in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Because among other things, worship is a labor. Worship is work. Think about what we call this time as we gather together every week. A worship service. It's a service that we bring to God. A labor, a sacrifice of praise unto the Lord. But it's not just our public or our private worship that is a labor or a service unto God. In a sense, Scripture teaches us that all of life is a worship unto God, a labor, a service to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, for the worship of God. And one of the areas where some of the Thessalonians were kind of out of line was in the area of daily work or labor. Paul uses the word idle three times in this passage, verse 6, 7, and 11. And the word means out of line or disorderly, unruly. God has given us an order or a rhythm for life. And the proper order for life is set forth in creation. And so we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the creation account, in verse 27... So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. There is a part of his original design. Before the fall, before sin entered the world, God commanded Adam and Eve to work, to labor. Before sin, they had a vocation. They had a calling to carry out. It included bearing and rearing children to multiply the image of God throughout the earth, to work the ground. So this labor and work included work for food. And I think there are important points here as we reflect on on Paul's words to these Thessalonian believers. Our calling to work and our calling to labor in our vocations, whether you are a teacher, a nurse, an engineer, a technician, a pastor, a homemaker, a farmer. They are all a holy calling from God because your work and vocation is a reflection of God's design for life in this world. We were made, in part, to labor. And our work is a reflection of God himself. Our God is a laboring God. Our God works. He worked in creation to make all things. He continues to work in his sustaining hand, in his providential hand. Uh, Jesus, when he was pressed and questioned by some of the religious leaders in John chapter 5, by working and healing on the Sabbath, Jesus responded by saying, My father is working until now, and I am working. Not only demonstrating his lordship over the Sabbath, what the Sabbath is for, but it points to the character of our God. He is a God who labors and works. 
Our Savior is one who works. So Adam and Eve were called to work and labor. They were called to cultivate food, to create a culture that reflects godliness. And I want to say here that our work, whether it's raising children or engineering or teaching, whatever our our station is in life that God has called us to, it is not a secular work. It is a sacred one. What God has called you to is a sacred calling. So I think as God's people, secular work is not so much divided from sacred work. I appreciated the the late John Stott, the minister at All Souls Church. He would often correct people as a minister himself when they suggested that pastors and missionaries were called to the ministry. He would say, you mean a ministry. And I think that's true. All of God's people are called by him to sacred work, to labor and to work in various callings to be salt and light, to to reflect the character of Christ everywhere in all that we do. But of course, there's a difference between work prior to the fall and after the fall, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3. is not the result of sin, but sin changed the nature of work. So, after Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord said to them in Genesis 3, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Notice that phrase, that last phrase. By the sweat of your face you shall eat until you die. So the entrance of sin into the world brought pain to our work, toil to our work, a weight, a sense of burden to it, sweat to our work. Again, some of us might be thinking, this sounds like my my workplace, sweat, pain, toil, burden. Things don't work easily and naturally. And and people will do what they can at times uh, to get around doing work at all. Uh, Our family was in the the mall this past week picking up a few things. We went into a store that had some different trinkets and there were some signs you could buy to put in your office on the wall or uh, on the the desk. And and one of them said, pretending to work. We we make even a, a joke about it, just wanting to get around the work. On that same day, we bought a Christmas tree. And uh, if you buy Christmas trees, you're supposed to cut off the end so it can soak up the water. We brought it home, and uh, my son and I went into the garage, and I started to saw, and I started to saw, and I kept going. About 30 or 40 ways in, I'm about a third through this, and I said, son, can you, uh, can you go grab the chainsaw? <laughs> Whatever we can do to lighten the work, sometimes that's what we'll do. Uh, Notice, one thing does not change before the fall and after the fall. Your work will produce bread. 
It's going to come by pain and sweat, but work is still a part of the calling. And I think it's not only possible, but likely that Paul himself has the creation account in mind in some of the verses we've heard from Genesis when he says in verse 7 and 8 of our text, when we were with you, we were not idle, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. And then in verse 10, for when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, what do we do with those words? Those seem so harsh. Ouch. Uh, Paul, the theologian of mercy and grace, he's coming with hard words about responsibility and work ethic. So this is Paul's school of hard knocks in a certain way. And his hard words instruct us that not only does your interest in the word of God and on the life of prayer and a desire for worship all reflect your character, as, as a believer in Christ, but how you work, how you view the work that God has given to you, whatever that may be, whatever lot that is, whatever station you're at in life that God has ordained for you, that too reflects our godliness. How we carry out our life in the labors that God has given to us. So what was happening in Thessalonica? Some believe the idleness was the result of kind of an end times or eschatological excitement. That some, perhaps, were already selling their possessions thinking that the return of the Lord was at hand. And they're now struggling with the consequences of that. Others suggest the issue centered around this patron-client relationship in which wealthier believers were supplying the needs of those who had less even though those with less were demonstrating a kind of irresponsibility in carrying their own weight, in working to provide. Whatever the, re the reason, the result was idleness. Again, a word speaking about a life that is disordered or unruly. Now, we should recognize there's a difference between idleness and neediness. When Paul says in verse 10 that while we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat, he wasn't suggesting that there aren't people in need of the mercy of God, the extension of our hands to help those in need, those who have lost their job or fallen on a hard time or an individual, a widow needing help, provision. These are people capable of laboring, serving, but neglecting it's easily overlooked, but Paul makes a point about our work or vocation, that it's not a mere practical matter. Our work is a spiritual matter to God. How we labor, labor how we live from sunup to sundown reflects on our godliness. It's very different from our culture. It seems to me increasingly that work in our culture or from a cultural vantage point, is only a means to an end. Right? People are living Monday through Friday for what? The weekend. That's what dominates some people's minds to get to the weekend. When the weekend is over, people experience what? A case of the Mondays. People will say that. They don't like Monday. Right? 
And our culture is seeking to sell us on the idea that the reason you work is to have a weekend. And the reason you work throughout your life is to have a retirement. Our culture itself is, in a way, very idle in that sense, disorderly, out of sorts, unruly. Our cultural pattern for life is five and two. Work five, and then two days are for me. It's a pattern of work a career to set yourself up for a retirement of relaxation and personal pursuits. That's not God's pattern for us. That's not where real rest comes from. God offers true rest, not in a weekend or in a retirement, but in the Lord himself, in the rhythm that he has for life. It's rest through relationship with Jesus Christ, his son. He is the true Sabbath rest, as scripture tells us. It's rest in the gospel of our salvation, that which frees us from ourselves. I see this, this idleness as a kind of, it's kind of like a prescription drug that the world or the evil one kind of holds out for us for an easier way to live life, to kind of lighten the demands. But as with most prescriptions, there's often side effects, or can be. We've probably all seen or heard those, those advertisements offering some kind of prescription uh, drug. And it's almost humorous, isn't it? When they get to the end and then they, it's like hyperspeed when they mention running through all of the potential uh, side effects, the potential dozens and dozens. Right. Take this for your seasonal allergies. First consult your doctor. It isn't for everyone. Possible side effects may include, but not be limited to shortness of breath, depression, drowsiness, high blood pressure, low blood sugar, blurred vision, itchy throat, and, and 48 other things right, that are mentioned. And I see idleness, while it could be tempting to have numerous potential side effects, but it really leads to a life of disorderliness. And, and Paul identifies one of those side effects in verse 11. We hear some of you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And Paul's using here a play on words. Right? A busy body is busy, but not busy in their vocation or calling from God. Rather, busy in other people's business. They're busy meddling. Well, Paul not only identifies this idleness, he provides direction. There are hard words to this passage, but he provides remedy and encouragement to this church. And one of the places that he points to is himself. His own example in what labor ought to look like. So in verses 7 through 9, he says this. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Paul, Silas, Timothy, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. It was not because we do not have the right that is to receive support, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. Right? Paul's not only talking the talk, he's walking the walk. They saw someone whose life demonstrated a passion for the gospel. Even though Paul, 
as a missionary, an apostle, a pastor type, had given uh, from God a right to receive support from the church, he would not receive it. You know, it's often been said that the Apostle Paul was bivocational. He supported himself in tent making. He also served as an apostle and as a missionary. And I suppose in a lot of ways, or in some ways that's true, but it seems to me he was really more one vocational because he earned everything he got from his own tent making, from his own labors. Uh, he goes to a far extent in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 9 in speaking about the rights he has that he would not receive those. He would not take advantage of those. Almost all of his earnings were through his own efforts. Though he had a biblical God-given right, which you can look at in 1 Corinthians 9, he refused the right. He worked night and day to feed himself to show his own pure motivations in advancing the gospel. And yet as powerful as Paul's example is, his, his work points all of us to the greatest work that has been done. And that's the work, the labor of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry and in his death for our sins. His life was never idle, never out of sorts. His heart was determined to walk the path to the cross. By that labor, by that work, we are redeemed. And it is to him and to his work that the author of Hebrews reminds us. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Paul, in verse 13, encourages the church. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. God has called you to himself to represent him in the station and the place uh, that he has put you. Calling is a holy calling because it comes from a holy God. We are the temple of God. You individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where you go, you bring God with you. You represent the Lord God himself. Whether it is in your marriage or in your family, your workplace, you bring and represent the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not the nature of our work that makes it a holy calling. It is much more the fact that we are a holy people. We've been made holy by the work of, of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for, for us in advance. Oh Lord, how we thank you that uh, your word and the gospel of our salvation touches uh, in uh, the, the most practical areas of our lives. Your, your calling upon us to, uh, to labor, uh, to work, to, to serve in the, the place 
which you have put us. We thank you that, uh, that, that our faith is relevant uh, to all of life. Uh, we pray that you would, by your spirit, Lord, give us uh, your grace and a spirit of diligence uh, that we would uh, apply our faith um, to our labors, uh, that we would be a people who, who seek to walk and live in the rhythm and the pattern that you have set forth, and uh, Lord, that we would encourage one another uh, in living in such a way that would be pleasing to you, that we would be demonstrating uh, and growing in godliness. Uh, for we, Lord, we know are salt and light uh, in this world. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would go before us in this, uh, binding us together, uh, strengthening us, um, and filling us with joy as we walk after you uh, and all the places and all the spheres of influence we have. And we pray that you would continue to be with us, Lord, as we have heard from your word, um, feeding us from your word, would you feed us uh, by this meal, uh, the Lord's Supper, as we prepare to partake of it. We give you thanks for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.